this summer, if you've walked alongside our family, you know that a lot of things broke. A lot of mundane things, but they all added up. So, for instance, uh, our fence sort of broke. (laughs) Our water heater broke. My car broke in many different ways. Uh, I'm sure other things broke too, but I don't actually remember because when things break and when things break in accumulation in my life, I freak out. My eye starts to twitch. And I sort of ignore everybody emotionally until everything is sort of sealed up. And what I think closure has happened. When that happens, um, everything is fixed again. In my mind, I return. A counselor once told me that maturity is growing the space between stimulus and response. So that when something happens, stimulus, you are able to choose or at least engage your response instead of flying into as like flying into an anxious freak out which is what i usually do which is what we usually do when life breaks down think of the last time something broke in your life we want to fix it immediately we put everything else on hold as we try to fix it. Charles Hummel in the 60s, he put a phrase to this. He called it the tyranny of the urgent. And who gets left out? Let me just ask, be honest, who gets left out in this process? Usually, God. At least in my story, God gets left out when I am in the tyranny, in the grip of the tyranny of the urgent. We try to fix things. We take matters into our own hands. And the last thing we do, the last thing I do, is slow down and pray. But the pattern that Nehemiah sets for us that we just read is the exact opposite. So think about this. Think about this. Nehemiah's water heater doesn't break. Nehemiah here is in the Persian capital. And he hears that God's house is broken. As an exile, as a faithful Believer in Yahweh, he hears that God's house is broken and in shame. Look at verse 3. He says, The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates are destroyed by fire. And so it would be easy, I think, to forgive Nehemiah if he freaks out and starts taking matters into his own hands. And what you will find is that Nehemiah is a, quote, man of action. When he hears something's wrong, he goes and he does it, often without thinking first. And so it is striking to me that what he does first is he prays. Verse 4, as soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days. And I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. So Nehemiah is teaching us all something very important this morning. The first step to renewal is prayer. The theologian J.I. Packard points out how Nehemiah punctuates his story with prayer. He starts and he ends the book of Nehemiah with prayer. You could just take a look, even if you wanted. The very beginning of Nehemiah and the very end is a recorded, extended prayer, as if he is saying, prayer is the bookends to renewal. And then all throughout these two bookends, Nehemiah is constantly referencing his prayer. 
So don't miss this. When life is broken and needs renewal, the Bible invites us to pray. So we're going to look at this great, famous prayer. But first, let's just be honest for a moment about why we don't pray when life is broken. I thought of two different reasons in my own life. And the first is what I'll call professionalism. Because professionalism makes prayer inefficient. We're so busy and life is so complex that prayer seems to be a little naive and a lot inefficient. Let's just be honest. I love this quote from Zach Eswine. He says, spending time in prayer and meditation seems inefficient amid my responsibilities. So that's number one, professionalism. I think there's another one too, though. And I'll call it this, consumerism. Consumerism makes prayer, I think, too threatening. Let me explain why. Consumerism, the idea is that you consume something to get something out of it that is pleasant to you, that is desirable to you. And when you approach prayer in that way, oftentimes God has a different design and it's threatening to you. So why do it? A consumerist mentality is death to a prayer life. So that Eugene Peterson says, praying puts us at the risk of getting involved in God's conditions. Be slow to pray. Praying most often doesn't give us what we want. But what God wants. Something quite at variance with what we conceive to be in our best interests. So we have our work cut out for us. Let's just be honest. We really do, because we need God to change our mind about prayer. And Nehemiah's prayer, I think, is grace to us. It's a gift to us. It's an opportunity for us to learn and to be shaped by what Scripture says about prayer. We all have our ideas about prayer. Let's ask what Nehemiah has to say. Let's ask what God, through Nehemiah, has to say. And I see three things in this text that will help us as we consider what renewal prayer would look like. And the first thing is this. Renewal prayer, or prayer that leads to renewal, is first controlled by God's Word. Okay? Controlled by God's Word. This prayer in Nehemiah is saturated with God's Word. Nehemiah is either praying Scripture in this prayer, referencing God's story, which he learns through Scripture, or claiming God's promises that he gives through Scripture. Now, why is this important? A couple of reasons. Number one, praying God's Word fuels worship. Now, what is worship? Worship is ascribing worth to something. And so we can worship anything. We can ascribe ultimate worth to our job and worship our job. We can ascribe ultimate worth to our reputation and therefore worship our reputation. What Scripture does is it puts us in our place so that we ascribe ultimate worth and value to God and to His fame. And that's what Nehemiah does in this prayer constantly. If you look at verse 5, he says, O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love Him and keep His commandments. And it goes on. There's worship happening in this prayer. He's referencing God's story and God's character. And how does he know? God's word. 
the late Old Testament scholar Derek Kidner, one of my favorite people in the world, says that Nehemiah deliberately postpones his cry for help. Which could otherwise be faithless and self-pitying. So what does he do instead? He worships. Praying God's word fuels worship. Scripture puts everything, especially us, in its place. Another reason why I think prayer controlled by a word of God uh, brings renewal is because praying God's word fuels, now listen, confession. We would not, we would not be, um, as we often say in our, in our Christian subculture, convicted of sin. We wouldn't be made aware of ways in which we are against God's good ways unless we are praying and engaging with our hearts before God, the word of God. So in verses 6 through 7, if you take your eyes to the text, you'll notice it's one big confession. It's not just an individual confession where Nehemiah says, I have acted wrong according to your word. He says, we have acted wrong according to your word. And so what we find in Nehemiah is we find both an individual confession and a corporate confession. You've often wondered why we say our confession together in church. We're training our hearts and our minds to think this way. That we are together. That we are uh, sort of one body. Not sort of. Definitely one body in Christ. And so what happens is when we confess our sins, we are in a way owning each other's sins together and confessing our sins. There's a corporate humility that happens when we open the word. And then, of course, Nehemiah confesses things that he's not even guilty of personally. But because he's part of God's people, he confesses them to God. And so whenever we pray God's word, if our hearts are alive to God, we will be immediately drawn into the ways in which we individually and corporately fall short of God's good commands. It just happens. I'll tell you, it doesn't happen when we don't pray God's word. Our own self-justifications and our own forgetfulness sort of hold sway. But the minute we crack open the word and we read and we just say, God, what what are you revealing about me? Confession begins. As Kinder puts it, Nehemiah will have to come empty handed with his requests. Isn't that good? So next time you pray, imagine just coming empty handed before God. With your confession. I think praying God's word also fuels confidence, unlike anything else. So it fuels worship, it fuels confession, and it fuels confidence. So the humility that comes with the empty hands of confession, we then now get to, with those empty hands, lay hold of God's promises in his word. And that is an incredibly emboldening reality. When we pray God's word, we hear true things about and spoken about us that, that are true, whether we think they're true or not. They're true. So if you are if you are trusting in Jesus, you are the son, you are sons and daughters of him. And there is nothing at all that you can do to change that status in Christ. And when you see that, if your hands are empty because you've confessed your sins and all the ways in which you've rebelled and deserve exile from God's home, what you can do now is lay hold of that reality that you are a son or daughter of God by grace. And that makes you bold. 
That makes you very, very bold. Look at the confidence of Nehemiah in verse 8. I mean, we're just going down the prayer. And we see it. We see confession first and then confidence second. Remember the word that you commanded your servant Moses, he prays. So he's praying scripture right now. He says, if you're unfaithful, we'll be scattered. And that happened. So, so he's simply saying, yeah, God, you're right. That happened. And then he says, he has a turnaround. He says in verse 9, but if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though you dispersed be under the farthest skies, I will gather them from there and bring them to the place that they have chosen. So what is Nehemiah doing? He is with his empty hands laying hold of God's promises and simply doing what my children like to do, which is this. But dad, you said. In those moments, my kids aren't being proud or arrogant towards me. They're being faithful to my word. It's just that I'm a lousy dad. If I make a promise and don't follow through. But dad, you said. They're the ones being faithful, not me. Oh, but our father in heaven is perfect. And so when we say, but God, you said. With empty hands, we lay hold of his promises. And that makes us bold. That makes us very bold. If you've been with us in the I Am series, you know that I've been doting on Reepicheep. Remember Reepicheep? There he is again. I'm going to talk about Reepicheep maybe one more time, and then I've sort of cashed out my Reepicheep value uh, for the year, at least six months. Do you remember him in the Chronicles of Narnia? He's bold. He's a small little mouse, but he's incredibly confident. He's overconfident, perhaps, but he's so bold. And uh, what makes this tiny mouse so bold? Right here is a picture of him going off to the east. Do you remember? He goes off all the way. Spoiler alert. He goes all the way over to the east to, to, to Aslan's country. With boldness. He doesn't know what's ahead of him. Why does he do this? And why is all of his life characterized by this kind of boldness? You don't really know uh, in Prince Caspian. You don't really know. It's just sort of a character trait. Okay, he's bold. But we do learn why in the next story, Voyage of the Dawn Trader. If you remember, and this is a small nerdy detail, he says he has a prophetic song that was sung over him as a small little baby mouse. And then he sings it. I'm not going to sing it, but it's this. Where sky and water meet, where the waves grow sweet, doubt not, Reepicheep, to find all you seek. There is the utter east. And he tells Edmund and Lucy that this little song has controlled him his entire life. And we as readers get the key to his boldness. In the same way, we have a sure word spoken over us. And we can pray with boldness. It can control us our whole life. We can listen to God's word. It can outcrowd the voices in our own life, our own internal critic, our own internal voice, whatever it is. Uh, It can overpower that. And we can have confidence. Not in ourselves, but in God's word. That's why we pray God's word. Jerry Bridges, he taught me that prayer... And scripture belong together like two wings in an airplane. And usually we get one or the other right. If we get one right without the other, then what does a plane do? It crashes. So let me just encourage you to open the Bible and to take it to God in prayer. 
You can ask God questions like this as you read it. You can say, God, what does this mean? That's a good one. The second one is, why are you telling me this today in my exact circumstance? And ponder that before God. Pray God's promises. Find God's promises and then pray them into the people you love's life. Into your enemies' lives. Jesus says to love our enemies. And so we can pray God's promises into our lives. We can say, God, when I read this, this emotion is cropping up. And we're going to talk a little bit about that a little bit later. And you can just say, God, I don't know what this is, but here it is. Do you see? You're taking the intellectual engagement of God's word and you're letting it sink about 12 inches to your heart in the presence of God who spoke this word. And that's very important. And that's what we learn about prayer with Nehemiah. Second thing, though, that we learn is this. Nehemiah teaches us about not just being controlled by God's word, but becoming comfortable with paradox. And let me just explain what I mean by that. Being comfortable with paradox. There is a particular paradox. Two things that appear to be absolutely contrary, but then when you think about them, and especially when you live them, you notice that they belong together. And what are they in this prayer? They are simple. There's God in complete control. He's Lord. He's sovereign. And prayer, our prayers, change things. Those two realities appear to be in absolute conflict, don't they? Nehemiah sits in them comfortably. Both of them. Both of them. And so Nehemiah asserts that God's in complete control. Beginning this prayer, if you see it, he says in verse 5, O Lord, O Lord, there it is, O Lord, God of heaven and the great and awesome God who keeps covenant. And he goes on. Prayer itself, Nehemiah's prayer itself is enacting a belief that God is in control. I mean, whatever your theology about prayer is, once you get down onto your knees and start praying, you are expressing a theology which says God is in control. I'm not. And yet, at the same time, Nehemiah assumes that prayer changes things. This is a bold prayer. And he understands that his mission of rebuilding God's house, God's place, Jerusalem, that his mission will fail if he does not pray that it will succeed. He's not just saying it because he knows he's supposed to say it. He truly, in the core of his being, believes that if he doesn't pray that this will happen, it won't happen. He believes that prayer matters to Nehemiah. It's a change agent. We want to resolve this tension between God's sovereignty and our responsibility. Nehemiah just prays in the tension and it makes his prayer powerful. Jay Packer, he talks about these two things in a very interesting way. He compares them to an archway with a keystone in the middle. And so the truth of God's sovereignty and utter control is arching this way. And the truth of our responsibility and the reality that that prayer matters is arching this way. And right in the middle of those two sort of colliding truths is a keystone that holds it together beautifully. These two archways held up by that keystone in the scriptures... 
are not in combat with each other. If you're a visual person, you can just imagine praying underneath those archways as a protection, as a support. God is in control. Prayer matters. They're both leaning on each other beautifully. And it's a mystery, but it's what God reveals. So that, know this, when this tension gets out of whack, okay, when one gets neglected, the whole thing crumbles down. Your prayer life will die if one or the other of these things is neglected. It's just true. Because think about it, if, if you neglect your responsibility to pray, if you neglect that prayer actually changes things, then you will never pray with fervor. You will never contend with God like Jacob. You will never do that. You will never, ever wrestle with God. And yet, on the other hand, if you neglect God's sovereignty, you will never rest. You will never sleep. You will burn out. You will resent God when things don't go the way that you pray. We need both. My suggestion, find the arch column that you are most uncomfortable with. And lean into that in this season of your life, okay? For me, I'm leaning hard into this reality that prayer changes things. Because my disposition is just, God's got it, God's got it, I don't, I don't, whatever. Just, it is what it is. God is sovereign. Amen? What I need to do is I need to lean in here and say, no, Lord, act, move, change, renew. Will you join me in doing that? It may very well be that you need to lean over here. I don't know your story. But find that imbalance and lean hard. One quick final thing that we can learn about prayer in this text. And it's this. Prayer is a renewing prayer when it's connected to our emotions. The emotive or affective quality of Nehemiah's prayer is on full display in verse 4. Verse 4 says, When I heard these words, I sat down and I wept and I mourned for days. And I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. And so we see Nehemiah in this text weeping, mourning, and waiting. So in verse 1, he tells us that he gets this bad news in Kislev which should be about November of our calendar. So in about November, he gets the news. And then in chapter 2, verse 1, we learn that his prayer is answered in Nisan, which is about March. So think about this for a minute. Do the math. That's about three to four months that he sits in these emotions before he acts, before he moves. He sits in these Mourning, lamenting, weeping emotions, and he takes them before God. Peace Cazero, he says that we can't be spiritually alive or healthy and be emotionally unhealthy at the same time. That's a bold claim, and the older I get, the more I believe it. God gave us emotions as part of his good design. We're not like philosopher Jamie Smith, brains on a stick, but we treat ourselves that way, and we certainly pray that way. We pray like we're brains on a stick. 
I dare you to read the Psalms with a pencil in your hand and write down every emotion that you see expressed in the Psalter. And you will discover that God not only made you with emotions, He longs that you bring them to Him. Prayer that is divorced from emotions, dare I say it, is not full prayer. Bring it to God. Bring all of it to God. Now, you are allowed to take it to God, but even know this. You're allowed even to bring your sinful, bent emotions to God. Some of us, I think, are afraid to bring our emotions to God because we know how messed up they are. We can. Just, let me just give you a tip. You can say, God, in heaven, this is how I feel. And if you have trouble putting your finger on how you feel, there are emotion charts online. So go get one. (laughs) And find where you are on that wheel and say, God, this is how I feel. What does that say, Lord, about what's going on? And and you may say, "That's, that's dangerous territory, Joe. We just need to pray with our brains. Pray with our brains. I'm telling you, no. Engage with your affections. Nehemiah does. And so should you. So friends, this is a beautiful, I think, template for prayer. It's a beautiful template. It's not quite complete, we would say, because the story of redemption continues. And so, in a further chapter, we would see the one greater than Nehemiah praying. Just like Nehemiah. And he's not praying for the renewal of the physical temple, like Nehemiah. But he's praying for the renewal of his people. Which scripture would later call his people spiritual stones that build up the temple of God. So yeah, he's praying for the temple. It's just you. You know he's praying for you in the Garden of Gethsemane. And his disciples, he says... Guys, will you come along and help me? And what happens to them? They fall asleep. Jesus continues to pray for them and for us. Did you know that right now, we asked the question in our worship service, where is Christ right now? Did you know that right now, as I preach this sermon, as we sit here with all of our stuff and we're thinking it through, did you know Jesus is praying for you right now? He is like Nehemiah on his knees, pleading for you, begging for you. Praying for you. Appealing to you. For you. And he has God's ear. His Father. And so we can pray in Jesus' name. All that we talked about. We can unload in Jesus' name. When we pray, you're clasping the scarred hands of Jesus. The King of the universe. And so God, we pray now in Jesus name we ask that you would open up to us a season of renewing prayer where we would connect scriptures to our prayers towards you that we would connect our our emotions uh, and our prayers to you and Lord that we would get comfortable in the paradox seeming paradox between your control and the power of prayer Lord that we would live in that tension like Nehemiah 
And most of all, Lord, would we pray in Jesus' name, knowing that our prayers are faltering, our prayers are weak, our, we have seasons of, of no prayer at all, and yet even in those seasons, you are praying for us still. And so that's why we pray now in Jesus' name. Amen.